Bowman. This is Lock and Key. And today, Rebecca Nolan is going to tell us a little bit about her radio piece. Yeah. yeah. So this is a story um, about a guy named Richard Hobbs who lives in the Center City. And he's lived in this area for about 18 years. In St. John's. In St. John's. Okay. Yeah. And so the really interesting part about this area is that you can kind of see the beginning of gentrification happening there. So on one side, you have houses that have brand new siding and brand new windows with for sale signs and advertisements for real estate agents. Um, there's a nice, pretty building that's for rent at 111. New coat of paint. There's one that is for sale right next to it. 3% reality. It's a kitty cat in the window. And then also down the road, you have houses that are just a bit more run down. And then across the road, you have this kind of dirt gravel parking lot with a trailer that someone has obviously been living in for a really long time. So you're kind of seeing the juxtaposition of wealth in the area kind of starting. So um, I met up with Richard. Richard, hi! I wasn't sure if I was at the right spot. Yes. How much motorcycles hard to miss? It is hard to miss. And then I was reading your sign. Yes, and so I... He'd been renting there for 18 years, and he had a really good relationship with his previous landlord, and everything was good. And then last year, around December of 2022, the building went up for sale, and that's when a lot of his problems started. But the way you first heard about it, right, was that this was a story about a rent eviction. Yeah, I believed it was a story about rent eviction at the beginning because it was it kind of like has the trappings of a rent eviction story. What is it? Can you describe like what a rent eviction yeah, is? Yeah, a rent eviction is when a new owner comes in and buys a building um, and either does renovations or claims to do renovations and then puts the unit up on the market for a significant amount of more money. I think even before we do that, um, could you describe your impressions of Richard to us? Or tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, he's a local character. A character like, everybody yeah. in the neighborhood knows him. Um, he has a motorcycle that he's always outside working on. And then he also does this thing where whenever he has ideas in his head about something that he really wants to, like, get out, he'll handwrite these notebook pages about it and he'll tape it up to his window. Um, and I was talking to him and he said that he'd been doing this for a while to kind of just, like, keep the neighborhood informed a about like what was going on with him as a person but then later as these renovation stories kind of kept going to kind of keep them informed about how everything was progressing i'm just like letting my neighbors know that i'm saying goodbye because uh, i uh, the sheriff's office had had dropped by yesterday and yesterday yes and so there was i thought i had a little more time but they showed up yesterday and i haven't told one day to clear out the last of my things so when I had first heard about his story, I called him up and he said that he had been waiting for the sheriffs to basically come and drag him out. But he didn't know when they were going to come because he'd had his final eviction notice and he'd just kind of been waiting around. Um, and then when I finally get there, he said that the sheriffs had been there and he had to leave in three days. So he has three days to get out. So, yeah, That's... I'm in a bit of a panic mode, but now I already have most of my things in it and their store is locked. So I'm just tidying up the last few things that I have. Going through kind of Richard's side of the story, um, he said that he got really off on the wrong foot with the new landlords because um, they kept entering the apartment. My previous landlord, he had never once used the key to come in here. Like we had uh, a cooperative relationship. If he wanted to come in, he would just call me on the phone and say, we want to come by on a certain day and we want to do it. And so there'd be no trouble. But this landlord... 
seemed to be a little more, well, like I took it as bullying. Right? They, were, they were kind of bullying me. Like, were they notifying him somehow? Yeah, they How were notifying they him. Yeah. Um, they would give him a letter like 24 hours in advance. they drop off a letter like yeah. in his mailbox? Yeah, oh, okay. or to his like door okay. to say, hey, we're going to come and do a inspection. I actually have a copy of those here if you want to see. Sure. So it's a, just like a standard landlord's notice to enter premises. Um, they say the time that they want to be there, which is 12 p.m. They say the date they want to be there, which is November 9th on this one. Um, and it says the reason. Um, they want to enter the property for quick property inspection. Landlord will use the key to enter if the tenant is not present. So above board kind of boilerplate what is normal. Yeah, it also seems like one of those things where you know, technically they were within, well within their rights to do this, but it just bothered him. Yeah. It's like a real, um, reminder of the precariousness of your living situation. If someone else can just walk in with 24 hours notice all the time. Yeah. Richard eventually brings up these concerns to the landlord and says, he thinks, Hey, I think you're stretching the limits of the 24 hour entry that you guys are allowed to have. At the end of one of the visits, I had spoken to the agent and expressed my concerns about the fact that they were going to use the key and I didn't appreciate that they were just going to walk in. And so this is around the time that he gets his first eviction notice. So this is in January. So in Richard's mind, um, the reason that he got this first eviction notice was because he was bringing up these issues of using the key more than he would be comfortable with. And you're not allowed to evict someone because they bring up a complaint with you. A landlord is not allowed to threaten or intimidate a tenant with an eviction for making a complaint or an application for a complaint. And eventually that eviction notice does go away. Okay. It goes away, but is he ruled to be correct or... And does it go away in what way? Like, he just said it went away. Okay. Um, so I do not know necessarily <laughs> what that means. He was under the impression he was allowed to stay. Yeah, he was under the impression that he was allowed to stay. The other issue that he was having with the new landlord is the mode of rent collection. His old landlord would come to his house once a month and by hand pick up his rental check. Because um, Richard is low income, he doesn't do online banking because that incurs fees. And even though they're not a lot of fees, when you are low income, that stuff really adds up. And so that was the system that he'd worked out with his previous landlord. And he was hoping that that was a system that he could continue to use with his current landlord. Um, The current landlord doesn't do that. They're all online. They all do basically through direct deposit. And so they told him, just hook us up with your online banking and we'll do direct deposit. And he wasn't comfortable with that. For a couple of reasons, A, because of the fees and B, because if he didn't have all of the money in his bank when they went to take it out, he would be charged a fee automatically. And there are a lot of times when he wouldn't have the right amount of money in the bank. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Can we work out another system? And the other system that they worked out was that he would mail them the checks. So the second month, I had gotten some checks from my bank and I bought a book of stamps and some envelopes, and I sent them the rent check for January. And he gets it off a bit late. He mails it December 29th, but that's getting into the holiday season, and so the rent was delayed. It didn't get to them until January 9th. So technically, he's late on his rent. And so the landlord warms him. They're like, okay. We get it. One time's a mistake. But if this happens again, we're going to have to charge you a late fee. And so he says, "Okay, um, I don't want to be charged a late fee. I don't trust the mail right now anymore if the mail's not going to get it to you. So you're going to have to come down and pick it up in person next time. And the landlord said no. And so that meant the next month, 
his February rent check, which he didn't mail, which he was waiting for the landlord to come pick up, never got to the landlord. And so the landlord issued a second eviction for not paying your rent. It might have been probably a week or two into February when they sent out a courier. And, you know, here's the funny thing. I offered the courier the rent check for February, but he wouldn't take it. But he did give me a 10-day eviction with cause, right, you know, which is non-payment of rent. And so then he calls them and says, hey, if I pay three months in advance, are you going to come and pick up the rent from me? Um, and they come down, and when they're picking up their rent, they serve him with his third eviction notice. What would the new one even be? Yeah, It's paying for the three months that he's allowed to stay there now. Because the new eviction notice is a three-month eviction notice. Instead of five instead days. Instead of five days. So now they're saying, okay, you paid your rent. We're still evicting you, but you have more time. So in my brain, how I'm interpreting this, I am not a lawyer. I know nothing about the law, is that the first eviction never went away. They evicted him that time at the beginning. And they had three months to evict him. And then he didn't pay the rent. So they gave him a second eviction notice, which was much quicker. Then he pays the rent. And so they go back to the three-month eviction so notice. The, the third one, the third eviction is essentially a recapitula- or yeah, redoing the first yes. notice. Okay. Again, not a lawyer. But that's <laughs> how I'm reading it as the story is kind of unfolding. And was there some sort of other scheme at play here? Like, were they always wanting him to get out so they could sell it or renovate or that's what he believes so he gets that third eviction and says that he has to be out by may 31st and around this time he's kind of fed up with this whole situation so he's like fine i'm gonna look for somewhere else to live um and he manages to get housing through the city of st john's through nl housing so he's gonna move yeah he's gonna move and they say that he can view the apartment on may 26 is it within the three-month period? Or? It's just within the three-month period. Yeah, he May needs to be out. First, he has to be out. Yeah, he has to be out May 31st. They're not letting him see the apartment until May 26th. Why can't he see it? I don't know. It's just their policy. So you're kind of supposed to accept it blind. Um, and so then he finally goes and he gets the keys on May 26th. He walks in the place and he looks around and he realizes that it's not what they promised him. And so he says, this isn't going to work. Thank you, but no thank you, City of St. John's. I'm going to give you the key back. And so he goes back to his current landlord and says, hey, I'm going to need a little bit more time because the place I was going to move into fell through. I don't think he ever really hears anything back from the landlord. But because of his interpretation of the Residential Tenancies Act, he cannot truly be evicted without going to a consultation of the Residential Tenancies Board. And so he's pretty secure in that he's not going to be dragged out. So he uses that time to kind of keep looking for alternative places to live. It's almost like, though, we're in the middle of a housing crisis we haven't seen since probably like the 60s or something. And he had a place and he, another place and he turned it down. And you're just, it sounds like he only found out how hard that was going to be in retrospect. And I asked him about it and I said, do you feel bad that you turned down that apartment? And he said, no. I don't feel bad that I turned down that apartment because it wasn't what I was promised. And I feel that the city of St. John's thinks that low-income people deserve so little, and I won't stand for that. And the thing about Richard is he kind of sees himself as standing up for the people that no one else is standing up for. And that's why he's making a fuss and not kind of laying down and taking things that he thinks are unjust. And so... All summer he's doing this. He's trying to find alternative housing. And then on July 6th, he gets a letter. um, And it was a full order of eviction from the Residential Tenancies Act, um, saying that there had been a hearing that had been done 
and they had determined that he was evicted. But the thing is, when they have those kinds of hearings, both sides are supposed to be there so that they can kind of give their arguments on their stance. And he had never gotten a letter telling him that this was going to happen. And so he was evicted without being able to go and kind of make his case. So that became the basis of his Supreme Court case because he took all of this to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland. So um, before we get into the Supreme Court case, um, Richard gave me a bunch of documents that he used actually in the case to kind of explain to me kind of his entire situation of what had been going on. And included in this were the eviction notices, the landlord's notice of entry, and then also the text conversations that he had between himself and the property management company. And I, before I read through all these documents, I was very much looking at this as a black and white story of landlords are bad and they're out for themselves and then tenants are good and can do no wrong, basically. Um, but reading through these text messages, which were the conversations between Richard and the property management, I think I got more of a gray view of this because he didn't always come off in the best light through these conversations. There's some pretty nasty stuff in here. Like he's really upset and he isn't pulling punches and he's, there's some misogynistic comments in here. Um, that nobody really wants to read. And, and it's also really clear when you read it that the responses from the property management company are really nice and fair. And when they've made mistakes, they own it in the... There's a few sorries and apologies in there. And, um, and they did seem pretty willing to adapt to him. You don't have internet? Okay, you can mail it. Okay, like, there's a... It, they were trying to meet him halfway, it seems. Well, that's it's not what you expected, right? No, it's not what I expected at all. So getting reading through these text messages was a real kind of eye-opener for me. That like, there are humans on both sides. And it's really hard to come at that in the rental market that we're currently in. Because the rental market is so messed up. And there are landlords who are doing bad things. And it's so easy to make it all one-sided and black and white. So goes to the Supreme Court next. So um, Richard submits his appeal to the Supreme Court on July 11th. And so he goes and he argues his case. And part of the argument for his case is that this isn't just a case for me. This is a case for all of the low-income people in St. John's who have been mistreated by landlords and by the system, um, which is a big argument. And the judge even says in their final verdict that this may be the case. This is how the world is right now and it's not okay, but that's not what this case is about. Um, so he goes, he argues his case against a professional lawyer, and he loses. I think their final piece of evidence they, they pull out is the receipt for the letter that was mailed saying this is the date of the hearing. Mm -hmm. And according to the law, Canada Post considers something mailed five days after it's been posted, whether it's received or not. Because there's no way of... I mean, you could... You could get the letter and throw it away and say you never received it. Yeah. So that's that's the rules. It's five days since posting. It's assumed that you've gotten it. So when I first started the story, like I said, I thought it was a very black and white thing. Um, but the more you get into it, it's much less about rent eviction, which is what I initially thought it was, and is more about 
landlord-tenant relationships and how they can go awry and what happens when they go awry. And so I was curious if there was anything in place to protect both sides against each other. Um, And that would end up being the residential tenancies agreement. And so I reached out to a guy named Sherwin Flight. Yep, my name is Sherwin Flight. I've been running the Newfoundland Tenant and Landlord Support Group here since about 2011. Um, I also work in the housing and homelessness sector as well. Uh, So between uh, what I do outside of work and what I do at work uh, gives me pretty good insight into some of the issues and problems and challenges that people face when they're uh, a tenant or a landlord. Richard is also kind of believing that the reason he is being evicted is so that his landlord can basically flip the apartment. And the reason rent evictions have gotten so bad, according to Sherwin, in the past couple of years that we've seen is because they changed the Residential Tenancies Act in 2018. It used to be that um, if you were going to evict someone or raise the rent, it was the same time frame. But then they changed it in 2018 to make it three months to evict and six months to raise the rent to kind of, I guess, in theory, give people more of a buffer to prepare for their rent to change. But because of that, it kind of created an unforeseen incentive for certain landlords to evict their current tenants so they could raise the rent faster. One of the things that we're noticing is that uh, landlords are more willing to serve a termination notice than a rent increase notice. Um, It takes six months notice to increase rent, but only three months notice to evict. Uh, So in many cases, uh, especially if it's a new owner that just bought the property, uh, you know, their primary objective is to uh, get more money for that unit. So it's easier for them uh, to just evict and re-rent to someone else at the higher amount than wait out six months uh, to increase the rent on the current tenant. So Richard thinks that this is what happened to him. He thinks that they just wanted to raise the rent and getting him out was the easiest way to do that. So that's the one piece of the problem. The other problem is these no-fault evictions. So the first and last eviction that Richard received were no-fault evictions. There was no reason given that he was being evicted. It wasn't like he was late on rent. He wasn't destroying the property, which are some other reasons that you could be evicted. He was just evicted for no reason. And so I asked Sherwin about this because I know that this isn't a thing everywhere. This is kind of almost only a Newfoundland thing. There are some places in the mainland that do it, but Newfoundland is kind of notorious for it. We've been advocating for a while uh, to try to get rid of those terminations, um, the three-month no-reason ones. Uh, I move more to a system where, uh, you know, you need to have a reason. And when we look at places like Ontario, um, they don't have no-reason evictions, um, but they have a fairly extensive list of reasons that you can evict. So, Uh, When the topic has come up here, people have said, you know, well, what if I want to move back into my house? Shouldn't I be allowed to evict? You can. In, In a system like Ontario has, that's one of the reasons that you can evict, and there's a certain amount of time. But you aren't allowed to just say you have to get out. And then if you do say in Ontario that you're evicting your current tenant because you want to move in, you have to move in. If you don't move in, there's a penalty. Um, And that comes to the other issue is the residential tenancies agreement basically has no one fully enforcing it. What Sherwin says is it's a policy with no teeth. And because both landlords and sometimes tenants know that there's really no way that this is being enforced, it's kind of up to you on whether you want to follow it or not. So 
how did this play out for Richard? Is is he okay? Is he does he have a place to sleep? When Richard first got evicted, he went from the place he was living to the gathering place and that was going pretty well for him for a while and he was really hopeful that everything was going to kind of turn around that he'd kind of gone through the worst that he was going to go through. But after he'd been there for around 2 weeks, he started to get a little uncomfortable in the shelter. There was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of drug use. And that just wasn't a thing that was making him feel safe. I was kind of uncomfortable with that situation, you know, because I don't drink or anything myself. And, you know, there there was a lot of, I'm not going to say there was physical fighting, but there was a a lot of outbursts, you know, from the guests and uh, a lot of noise at night. So it was really difficult sleeping. So he reaches out to the shelter system and says, this area really isn't working for me. He gives them the reasons. Is there a way I can be reassigned to a different shelter that might be a little bit, make me feel more comfortable? Um, And they said... They had requested that I send them three months of my bank statements in order to do that. And so I questioned, you know, why they would need three months of my bank statements, considering the fact that I had provided evidence that I was on income support. So they know he's on income support. They know that he's low income. But he was told that they need to prove that he is essentially poor enough to stay in the shelter. Because if he has a certain amount, undisclosed certain amount, he couldn't figure out what amount that is, of money in the bank, he would be required to use that money to get himself a hotel and stay in a hotel until that money ran out. And then he would be allowed back in the shelter. Oh, my God. On one level, it's someone saying... I get to decide whether you are poor enough to be helped, Mm -hmm. which is just messed up. And then also the reason that he was kind of concerned about this is he does have a little bit of money in the bank. He's been saving up to hopefully get a trailer because when he saw that his housing situation was going downhill, he thought, okay, I housing is iffy right now, but I might be able to save up enough money that I can get a trailer and park it somewhere and I could live in the trailer. So he has money in the bank that he's hoping to use on a trailer but they're saying you can't use that on a trailer. You have to use that on a hotel. So he's being punished for planning. Yeah. Uh. He's already on income support. Like, is that not good enough? I don't know. It's a really good question. And he was saying that he was talking to another person at the shelter and they had never been asked that question ever. And he wasn't asked that question when he first went in, when he was going to the gathering place. This was only when he was trying to get moved. And so he said, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not going to show you my banking statements, Um, A, because that makes me uncomfortable, and B, because who are you to decide who is poor enough to stay in a shelter or not? And because he wouldn't do that, he was kicked out of the shelter he was in. And because the shelter is run by one organization, he's not allowed in any other shelter in St. John's. What? If he's kicked out of one, he's kicked out of them all. What's he supposed to do? When I talked to him on the phone, um, this was the day he was being evicted from the shelter. And this is what his first night was like. I had to spend one night on the streets, which was a pretty terrifying prospect because it was a cold night. And I had to leave uh, the gathering place at 7.30. And so I went up to Tim Hortons and hung out there until 9 o'clock. And uh, someone had suggested that instead of you know, just walking around the city all night, I could wait at the... Uh, St. Clair's waiting room. And so on my way to St. Clair's, I, I dropped by Peter Easton's pub because I knew that, that they were open late. Now I don't drink, so I just bought a 
I bought a Coke and I explained my situation to the bartender and, and he told me I could wait out there as long as I wanted and I could come back anytime, which I thought was really nice of them. And so I think I left there around 11 o'clock and I went over to the St. Clair's and I kind of snuck by the duty nurse and it was pretty crowded that night and I just found one available seat and I sat there all night long. So he just stayed there all night? Like trying to sleep in a chair? He said he couldn't sleep. Um, it was loud and bright and I mean it's hard to sleep in a waiting room so he stayed awake all night. He was only in there so that he wouldn't be on the street. And then the second that the gathering place reopened the next day at 7 a.m., he went there. Because he's allowed to visit the gathering place during the day, but he's not allowed to stay there at night. So he got lucky, and after he spent one night in the street, he was able to get a hold of his friend, um, who would let him sleep on his couch for a while. And he was able to do that for about 10 days. Um, But the friend's landlord is not comfortable with having this guy from the streets sleeping on his couch. And so he knows that that could go away any day. He could wake up and not be able to go back there. So he's been trying really hard to find somewhere to live. Um, he's trying to find either an apartment or a trailer that he can rent. But he's running into a couple problems. One is kind of the problem he was having from the beginning, that he doesn't have reliable internet access. And so he can't find these places fast enough. I mean, we're in a housing crisis. Things are disappearing very quickly. Like, an apartment goes up for rent, and it can be gone in less than 24 hours. Um, and so he's not able to kind of keep up on that. And the other thing is, um, he doesn't have transportation. So he can't even go and view these apartments to be able to kind of put his name in for them. And so he's just missing out on these things just because he doesn't have the right transportation. It was kind of like a perfect storm of just, like, shitty situations. Because, I mean, even if we're going back to the whole issue between landlord and tenant. A person who gets kicked out by their landlord, they shouldn't be on the street. There should be safety nets in place. And those safety nets are failing him. The last thing he was saying to me is, I don't want to end up up in Bannerman at the tent city, but it's looking like that might be the next step, which is heartbreaking. Just, uh, he's obviously such a, like, interesting, smart guy, too. Just disappointing that, I don't know, like, if that's where he ends up, you can imagine someone who can't really advocate for themselves. When I was talking to Richard, the apartment that he got evicted from is empty. No one has moved in, and he has a neighbor who also has an empty apartment. So there are two empty apartments and a guy sleeping on the streets. So that's kind of how this whole saga comes to an end. Um, and last time I was talking to him, he was saying he's planning on submitting another Supreme Court case, this time about the shelter not letting him stay because of the undetermined amount of money. Um, yeah, and so I'm going to play this last clip for you, and it's kind of talking about how he feels that he's been failed. A lot of the resources, you know, that have been set up to help people in my situation, you know, they've been letting me down, right? And... and so I've just kind of been stuck in the middle, I, and I kind of feel like I have no options, I have nowhere to go, and really not a lot of support, you know, because the systems that I had been relying on are, I don't know if they're overbooked or they're understaffed, but they're just not available at this point, and I'm just afraid that, that I'm going to end up down in the Bannerman Park, you know, in a tent like a lot of other people. Just thinking of like- keep my fingers crossed for Richard this year and 
Yeah. Because it's it's winter. It's it's cold out, and the next couple months are going to be very hard for him. series podcast lock and key is produced by olivia ball edited by luke quinton and i'm your co-host andy bullman music is by jake nickel our art is by shanley pomeroy a big thank you to tom baird and sarah swain and a big thank you to justin brake editor of the independent for more in-depth stories about the housing crisis you can go to the independent.ca and thank you to everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center, the Center. However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the Center accepts no responsibility for them.